Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? This episode is timely. It's on anti-Semitism or hatred of Jews. And as we release it, we're learning more about the shootings in Jersey City, New Jersey this week that left six people dead, including at least two members of a local Hasidic community. The armed attackers targeted a kosher supermarket, and they appear to have been motivated by anti-Semitism and anger against the police. In Britain, the election campaign, which is just ending, has been tainted by shocking reports of anti-Semitism in the main opposition Labour Party. Labour's second most powerful leader has apologized to the Jewish community, and he admits the controversy may affect the result of the election. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Here's how we fight it. Barry Weiss. People, I think, are a little myopic when they conceive of who the victims of anti-Semitism are. Of course, the proximate victims are Jews themselves. But the much bigger and overlooked victim, if you look at history, is the surrounding society. And in this case, you know, we're talking about the health and resiliency of America. That is what's at stake. When anti-Semitism is rising, it is the number one sign that a society is dying or maybe is already dead. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So today we're going to talk about a problem that's almost as old as Western civilization itself. And it's making a comeback. In fact, anti-Semitism is morphing into new forms. It keeps adapting like a virus to new political situations. Today we're going to talk about what it means and how to fight back. Barry Weiss is an opinion writer for the New York Times. Her new book is called How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Welcome to our table on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much. So let's start with the incident that really led to this book. What happened on October 27, 2018? That morning, uh, a white supremacist named Robert Bowers walked into Tree of Life Synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, a neighborhood where I grew up the synagogue where I had become a bat mitzvah, just down the street from Mr. Rogers' actual house. And he walked into the building and said, like so many other anti-Semites, all Jews must die. And then he killed 11 
Pittsburgh Jews as they were there for Shabbat morning services. You heard about the Tree of Life shooting via, you got a text or an email? Yeah, like probably every American family, we have a family group text. And my youngest sister texted and said, there's a shooter at Tree of Life. And my thought immediately went to my dad. You know, my dad is what we call a promiscuous Jew. He floats among various different synagogues and sometimes can be found on a Saturday, a Shabbat morning at Tree of Life. And thank God he wasn't there. And you've you've compared this event for you personally to what happened on 9-11. I experienced a similar feeling after both events, which I guess I would call a waking up moment. I had spent most of my life on a kind of holiday from history. In other words, I was extremely aware of anti-Semitism rising across Western Europe, of Islamic anti-Semitism across the Middle East. But A, I believed in the mythology that America was a shining city on a hill, that it was the New Jerusalem, and that we were uniquely inoculated from this virus. Um, and I think my parents' generation, and then just really after the post-war, we were all living in that kind of sense. Even little incidences of anti-Semitism, people calling me a kike or asking me to pick up pennies, they rolled off my back. I saw them as vestiges of an older time. After October 27th, I felt like something changed. That holiday from history that I think many American Jews maybe didn't even realize they were on was over. You mentioned the idea that Jews in Germany prior to the Holocaust had lost their instinct for danger. Mm -hmm. Do you think the same thing has happened with the American Jewish community? I do. Um, I think that there, that is shifting rapidly in response to events around the world and events here at home. And I think what's, you know, if there's anything good to be gained from this moment, it's that the sense that we are in danger once again I think is pricking people's conscience. In other words, who are we and what are we fighting for? There's no point, um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, in fighting anti-Semitism just to survive in Jewish bodies, meaning the only reason and the only way ultimately to fight anti-Semitism is because there's something profound we're fighting for. I think that one of the blessings of America has been incredible Jewish acceptance overall, and that remains the case. And the result of that acceptance and luck has been that we've a little bit lost sight of of who we are and what we're about and what Judaism or Jewish civilization is actually about. If there's anything good that can come of this precarious moment, I think it's a return to answers to those questions. You just said that the best way to fight anti-Semitism is to know what you're fighting for. What are you fighting for? Well, Charles Krauthammer had this great line when I asked him what kind of Jew he was. And he said to me, I'm a Shinto Jew. In other words, he's a Jew that worships his ancestors. But of course, all Jews worship their ancestors. And my sense that I come from a profound line of resilient, revolutionary intellectual history, people descended from slaves that brought into the world some ideas that have shaped the course of really human civilization that's what I'm fighting for, meaning I see myself as a tiny link in that very, very, very long chain. The second thing that I would say that I'm fighting for is America. In other words, people, I think, are a little myopic when they conceive of who the victims of anti-Semitism are. 
Of course, the proximate victims are Jews themselves. But the much bigger and overlooked victim, if you look at history, is the surrounding society. And in this case, you know, we're talking about the health and resiliency of America. That is what's at stake. When anti-Semitism is rising, it is the number one sign that a society is dying or maybe is already dead. There's some construction going on next door on our normally very quiet street. And, and I was just bragging about it, how quiet the <laughs> studio usually is. Yeah, so but, you may hear a little drilling sound. But let's talk about this idea that the way that a society treats its Jewish members is a pretty good marker for the, the health, the, the state of freedom and tolerance generally in that mm-hmm. society. You talk about something called the kippah test. Mm. Explain to people what that is. Yeah. So a kippah, otherwise known as a yarmulke, is the little cap, the skull cap, I think is the Catholic word for it, um, that religiously observant Jews wear. Um, when I talk about the kippah test, I mean that do you feel safe where you live walking around the street with a kippah on your head, with a Jewish star necklace, or do you find that you are putting a baseball hat over it or putting that symbol, the Jewish star, inside of your shirt? That is a really good test. And if you look, for example, at Paris, you know it very much right now in 2019 does not pass that test. There are certain parts of Brooklyn, frankly, at this moment that don't pass that test. Right before I came on here, I read about a bus full of Jewish day school girls that was pelted with rocks, you know, on the way to school. So in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, just now, I'm have a somewhat English background and recently just got back from London Mm. um, and they're about to have a general election Mm -hmm. and there's some stunning stuff going on with the Labour Party in Britain and with Jeremy Corbyn, its leader, who has... Uh, who is an anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> who is an anti-Semite or at least has, has very much associated himself with anti-Semites. And he's the leader of one of Britain's two largest political parties. Yep. And, and we have a situation where... Jews in Britain traditionally have often voted labor. Mm -hmm. And now, according to one opinion poll, I think it's nine in 10 Jews in Britain say they won't vote labor. So the majority also, so it's not just that 94% say they cannot vote for labor. It's that there's also a majority number who say they're considering leaving England if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister. And I don't think they're crazy to think that. There is a connection between the kind of street violence that we're seeing in London, the kind of um, increasing institutionalized anti-Semitism that cloaks itself as just anti-Zionism, and the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has called Hezbollah his friends, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn says the BBC is biased because it believes Israel has a right to exist, the fact that he says that Zionist Britons lack a sense of English irony. I mean, I could go on all morning. And I'm writing in my next column about the things people are willing to overlook, meaning there are people in Britain saying, It's a pity about his anti-Semitism, but austerity measures, but Brexit, but whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how high the cost really is. What about the rest of Europe? Because the European Union was formed as 
a way to end war and bring Europe together. It was a liberal in its intention. There's lots to discuss here. In countries where survivors of Hitler's genocide still live, you know, we are seeing the rise once again of right-wing neo-Nazi authoritarian politicians. Viktor Orban is a very good example in Hungary. Um, and also of just popular movements. So seeing neo-Nazi parties and authoritarian leaders, you know, I think of Viktor Orban, I think of the government of Poland, where they just passed a law making it illegal to say that the nation collaborated with the Nazis. Like this kind of historical revisionism in an era where Holocaust survivors are still alive is is really, really breathtaking. You've called anti-Semitism an ever-morphing conspiracy theory with Jews in the starring role. In the U.S., we're seeing kind of two forms of that ever-morphing conspiracy theory, one on the right and one on the left. Yeah, so the kind that appears at least right now on the right in America is very blunt in what it seeks. It's like the Pittsburgh killer or the white supremacist who walked into the synagogue in Poway, California, six months later to the day on April 27th. This is the all Jews must die, genocidal anti-Semitism that does not pretend to be anything other than what it is. It is the most physically threatening kind of anti-Semitism, meaning if you just look at the numbers, the the obvious Jewish deaths, murders have been at the hands of these kind of anti-Semites. In, in the US. Yeah. And and. The kind on the left is more complicated because it doesn't seek to murder Jews. It seeks to marginalize them. It seeks to make the spaces where Jews can freely practice their culture, their religion, express Jewish ideas, express their support, even with criticism for the Jewish return to political sovereignty in the land of Israel. It seeks to make those spaces increasingly constrained until they don't exist at all. Now, today on the far left, it's not Jewish religious practice that's the problem. It's expressions of Jewish particularism and Jewish power. And the most obvious symbol of those things, obviously, is the state of Israel. Can you be critical of the government of Israel and, and not be thought of as somebody who's an anti-Semite? Yes, because if it were true that criticism of Israel made you an anti-Semite, I would be an anti-Semite many times over publicly in the pages of the New York Times. I am deeply critical of the current government of Israel. Most American Jews, by the way, also are. No problem. Like That's not what it's about. What the what anti-Zionism is about is opposition to the largest Jewish community on planet Earth in the historical homeland of the Jewish people in any borders at all. Well, it sounds like something that's not bloody, but in reality, what that policy would lead to, I think, is nothing less than a genocide. So what is Zionism? What Zionism is, is the Jewish belief in self-determination in the historical land of Israel. Now, that can be interpreted in many ways. There are right-wing chauvinist Zionists who believe in, you know, the primacy of Jewish land over the safety of Jewish democracy. But what is alarming to me is somehow that Zionism over the past, maybe since the 60s, has taken on this valence of like supremacy or Jewish chauvinism or something bad. Um, where that's not its meaning at all. And that, and, that, and that is an active propaganda project. 
And that led to the resolution in 1991 when the UN General Assembly passed that notorious proclamation that Zionism is a form of racism. So if you can equate people who believe in the state of Israel with racists, that gives you a huge amount of power to marginalize. Totally. And that's exactly what happens. Because if if people believe that Zionism is racism, well, then Zionists are racist and we know what needs to happen to racists. And that's what you see happening over and over and over again on places like American college campuses. Speaking of what's going on on college campuses, sometimes that's really a bellwether for things that are going to infiltrate the rest of our society. Tell us about the BDS movement. Mm. Yeah, what what does BDS stand for? BDS stands for the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions Movement um, that targets Israel. So the test of BDS's success is not the fact that most universities haven't adopted it. The test of BDS's success is that if you are a progressive or liberal college student and you go to the college activities fair, you sign up for all of these clubs. You sign up for raise the minimum wage, better rights for cafeteria workers, legalize marijuana. Oh, and by the way, BDS, meaning it's become an increasingly normative plank of political progressivism. And that is something that's extremely dangerous. Now, most of the people who are signing on to it, of course, they're not anti-Semites. Of course, they don't dislike Jews. They don't realize that they're signing on to something that's not about ending the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, but is about erasing any Jewish state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. You've written that President Trump has been attacking the weakest and most vulnerable in the country. To what extent does his action, his views, promote anti-Semitism, or at least promote an environment in which anti-Semitism thrives? I think my colleague at the Times, Brett Stevens, put this in the most memorable way, which is that Donald Trump has dismantled the moral guardrails that keep bigotry down, meaning there are norms in societies, right? And Donald Trump has sort of not just dismantled it, done it with relish and glee, Just to pick a tiny recent example, there is a fundamentalist or conspiratorial news streaming service called True News. There's a guy on there who's a newscaster, a fundamentalist. His name is Rick Wiles. Rick Wiles sat down for an interview with Donald Trump Jr. Rick Wiles was called on by the president of the United States in a news conference. And Rick Wiles went on his station two weeks ago and said the impeachment hearings are not actually impeachment hearings. It's a Jew coup and it's attempt to replace the president with a Jewish cabal. So that is the kind of thing that Trump has normalized and it is unbelievably dangerous. And it is not a coincidence that white supremacists like Richard Spencer have been drawn to his banner. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Barry Weiss, the author of the new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. We'll be right back. And it's our new feature, Recommendations. We've been talking about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party in Britain and the election. The best podcast I've heard about Brexit and about the upcoming British election is FT Politics by the Financial Times. It's on ACAST, and our show is too. Uh, Some very good podcasts on the ACAST platform, by the way. And so let's get back to the interview with Barry Weiss. You've said that you're critical of of many positions taken by the Israeli government, and yet many anti-Zionists think it's either or. One of the most controversial policies of, of the Israeli government is settlements. 
mm-hmm. um, and settlements in areas that are traditionally Palestinian areas rather than Israeli areas. What's your what's your view on settlements outside of the state of Israel? Well, keeping it on under sixty seconds. I, look, I think of <laughs> I think a few things. One, all of the most important things historically that have happened to the Jewish people in that land have happened in what we now call the West Bank in Judea and Samaria. Tel Aviv is historically insignificant to the Jews. Um, I believe that it is unsustainable for the state of Israel to remain democratic and continue to occupy another people. And I think the settlements do not help the goal of ultimately pulling out and there being an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel, a position that I come to not just because I care about the suffering of other people, but because I care about the integrity of the Jewish state. That said, I think there's a lot of lies that are told about this conflict. Um, And I think one of those lies is that settlements are the primary obstacle to peace, frankly. I went to Israel last year and, and, uh, among the people we spoke to for this program is, is Dalia Scheinlin, uh, who of Haaretz. Yes. And one of the things that really struck me is how small Israel is. Oh, my God. And how Israel is surrounded by governments that want to push it into the sea. Yeah. If you're just completely zoned in to the, let's say, Gaza, Israel proper, and the West Bank, you get a very particular view of who the strong man is and who the weaker party is. But then you just zoom out a tiny bit to what this country the size of New Jersey is surrounded by, and it becomes so much more complicated. In some ways, it seems like modern anti-Semitism has become a form of identity politics. I mean, you know, white supremacists hate Jews because they see them as some scary other. And on the far left, Israel... And, and the Jewish people, it's kind of um, the inverse of that. They're yes. portrayed as the ultimate white supremacists. Yes. Um, so what's going on? You know, Jews are the number one target of white supremacy, far and away. Anti-Semitism is the linchpin of white supremacist thinking. And for listeners who have not read it, I urge you to Google an essay called Skin in the Game by the anti-racist scholar and activist Eric Ward. He explains this extremely, extremely well. Um, But then on the far left, we have the attempt to, the active attempt to yoke the state of Israel um, to white supremacy. So often in our public debates, there's, and we, we've gone on and on about this. There's a lack of nuance. Mm. To what extent is social media contributing to, to this and to um, ramping up the charge that, that Zionism is some, somehow a form of racism or a form of extremism? It's just amping up everything and distorting everything. Um, and sometimes I honestly even wonder if it's making... I'll just use myself as an example, me more alarmed than I should be about the state of the world. I imagine that it is. The best thing that I've come up with for my own mental health is getting off of it a lot more. And frankly, going back to, you know, the old Jewish practice of the Sabbath, like logging off for 24 hours, 25 hours over Shabbat has really helped me. You've talked about 
being careful about what we can overlook. And there was a fascinating series of events around the Women's March right after Trump assumed the presidency mm-hmm. that involved some fairly ugly events that a lot of people felt they should overlook. Tell us about Linda Sarsour and the Women's March. Well, Linda Sarsour, despite her history of anti-Semitic scandals, she had to step down from her leadership of the Women's March. Ultimately, it took a few years for that to happen um, because so many people wanted to look away from the reality of what she represented. She is now a surrogate for the presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. This past weekend, she spoke at a conference called American Muslims for Palestine. At that conference, she said to progressive Zionists, she was addressing this question, you say, she said of this group that is the number one target of white supremacy, that you oppose white supremacy. But how can you oppose white supremacy when you support the state of Israel, which is based on Jewish supremacy? And then she said, based on the idea that Jews are supreme to other people. Now, I'll add that at that same conference, in case there's any doubt in people's mind, one of the sentences that I pulled just looking at the schedule of events is that it talked about how Zionism is contaminating the purity of Al-Quds, which is the Arabic word for Jerusalem. This is just plain and simple anti-Semitism. And yet, when you point it out, well, you know, Linda Sarsour, she herself is also the target of bigots, of people that dislike her because of her religion, her gender, etc. To which I say, yes, that's true. So is Ilhan Omar. So is Rashida Tlaib. People can be two things at once. They can both be the victims of bigots and they can be victimizers themselves. And I think holding those two things in people's heads is very, very difficult at the moment. Let's talk about solutions because your book is called How to Fight Anti-Semitism. So where do we make progress? Well, first of all, I think that the first step, and I do not think we're there yet, is a willingness to see it wherever it rears its head, even when that place is inconvenient to our politics. So if you're serious about fighting anti-Semitism, you will call it out on your own side. Another solution is praise those who do the right thing. Yeah. Why does that matter? Because I think it's important for people to feel their own power that a person can make a difference and change the world. It sounds like a cheesy thing you'll find on a, like a yoga t-shirt, but it's very real. And if you want to see how real that is, look at a person like Majid Nawaz. You know, Majid Nawaz started his adult life. Are you guys friends with him? Yeah, we, he was on our show. He's wonderful. (laughs) He's great. He's incredible. He's one of the greatest allies to the Jewish people in this moment. He is what we would call a righteous Gentile, but of course, anyone who knows him would know that he spent years of his life as an Islamist member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he still is a devout Muslim. Yes. So he's an amazing example to me of the ability of people to change and then the ability of people who once did evil things to do amazing and righteous things. So I got to ask, as our last question, the, the, the question we so often ask, Jim, we have to find other ways of asking this. Are you hopeful? Yes. And I'm hopeful because I am a student of Jewish history. And I am aware that as challenging as this moment feels, I remain you know, a member of the luckiest diaspora community ever. I live a life that would have been unimaginable to my great-grandparents. 
I get to work every day at the New York Times and I never check my Jewish or my Zionist or my feminist identity at any room I enter ever. That is amazing. And I never lose sight of that miracle. That's a lovely way to end. Barry Weiss, thank you for being at our table and joining us today. Thank you, guys. The most compelling argument that Barry Weiss made for me is why non-Jews like myself should care about this. And it's pretty clear that if anti-Semitism is on the rise, then democracy and tolerance and freedom and individual rights are threatened. So, Jim, you are married to Jenny, Jewish woman, Jewish teacher, and you're raising your three grown sons as Jews. So yeah, so this well, this is resonates for me, um, partly for that reason. I, I thought that note she made about people losing their instinct of fear is really important. And as I've raised my boys, I've thought. You live in this incredibly blessed, peaceful world. You're not surrounded by people who question your right to to exist. And um, so are you cognizant of that potential, which sadly is always there, that things could turn around, things could turn around relatively quickly? But also, I think for all American Jews, it is perhaps too easy to be complacent or as Barry mentioned, to be willing to overlook stuff because somebody who seems to be on your side on other issues has a few troublesome beliefs. And, and I would highly recommend the, that article she mentioned in Tablet, where they did a... T- Tablet is a Jewish publication. Yeah, and it's a wonderful magazine, and where they did a really in-depth investigative report on what happened when the Women's March got going and, and a couple of the, the, the women at the head of it actually really pushed out some of the Jewish women who were there their colleagues in it because they didn't they didn't believe that it was appropriate to have Jewish women in the leadership of the Women's March. Because to me, the, the Women's March was, was such an extraordinary event. And Me Too, although there have been problems, is, is an overall positive for our society. Sure, yeah. But I don't, I don't see why you can't recognize a problem with a few people you know in the leadership of that movement and still not embrace me too i certainly i think one point that barry made is for her this is part of her feminism so i don't think those things are in conflict it's how do we fix it i'm richard davies and i'm jim meggs and our producer is miranda schaefer we're a production of davies content davies content makes podcasts for companies and nonprofits. if you think you can do a podcast or make a better podcast then check us out at davies You mean make a better podcast than ours? Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening.